If you have the target ownership in mind and you're looking to raise, say, a million dollars on a seven million post valuation and somebody comes in and they say, this is an amazing deal. We love you. Let's put three million on this valuation. You can see already the percentage ownership radically changes quickly. Welcome to How to Raise a Round, Carta's podcast about one of the most challenging elements of every startup founder's journey, raising money. Each episode, we sit down with new and veteran founders to hear the stories behind their funding rounds and learn about the challenges, advice, and unexpected lessons they learned along the way. I'm Josh Durst-Wiseman, manager of branded content at Carta and host of How to Raise a Round. Our guest this week is Laura Wittig, co-founder and CEO of the community-driven lifestyle startup, Brightly. In winter of 2020, Brightly raised a $1 million priced seed round amidst a global pandemic. But Brightly had a unique beginning. The company started out as a sustainability-focused podcast that Laura launched in 2019. But as we'll see in this episode, Brightly picked up traction faster than Laura could have ever imagined. And as a female founder, she knew that founders like her were largely underrepresented in tech, which would naturally pose challenges for her during the fundraising process. Throughout her raise, she had to work harder and learn to improvise. I'm Laura Wittig. I'm the CEO and co-founder of Brightly. Brightly is the number one destination for conscious consumers online. So we inspire millions of millennial and Gen Z women to live eco-friendly lives and to shop sustainably every day. Brightly was born out of Laura's passion for making sustainable living accessible to anyone and everyone who is interested. Today, Brightly is a community-driven platform that features news articles and compiles shopping links for eco-friendly fashion items. However, when Brightly first launched, it looked nothing like it does today. Brightly came about as an idea in 2017, and I had the idea for an eco-friendly marketplace of products that were going to serve this new class of conscious consumer that we know today. But I was still working full-time as a product manager. I realized that it was going to be necessary to start content first. So Brightly as we know it today actually launched in July 2019 as a podcast. At first, we weren't focused on raising money. We were truly focused on getting our message out to as many people as we possibly could. When Laura and her co-founder Lisa started producing Brightly's podcast, it was just a passion project on the side. Laura was working full-time at Adobe when the podcast launched, and she just wanted a platform through which she could share her excitement about sustainable living. Our podcast is called Good Together, and our main focus there was to get our non-judgmental, exciting way of talking about eco-friendly living out into the ether. We wanted people to be able to identify with us as we went on our own eco-friendly journeys. We also wanted to start to get the overall message of Brightly out into the world. So I literally would sit at my desk sort of on my lunch break (laughs) and check downloads and see what was going on. And from July until right before Black Friday, November, we had relatively steady growth. And then the unbelievable happened. Overnight, Brightly's podcast blew up. Around November in 2019, Apple actually picked us up as their number one pick for conscious consumers. And they had a big banner feature around Black Friday. So when that happened, I was sitting at my desk and refreshed the analytics. 
And it really was like, oh shit moment. Like, is this actually happening? And I remember I called my co-founder and I was like, do you see what's happening? And that's kind of when we figured we must be featured somewhere. The numbers that Laura was seeing from Apple suddenly indicated that Brightly had a real audience. Or in other words, there was a market for what Laura was building. If she could learn her audience's problems and successfully solve them, then she might be able to turn Brightly into something really big. This put Laura at a crossroads. If she really wanted to do this, she would need to dedicate herself to Brightly full time. One of the core tenets of product management and really just company building, as it were, is product market fit and being able to test that as quickly and as cheaply and efficiently as you possibly can. So for us, the podcast was a great way to test our hypotheses around content and audience building as it related to commerce and as Brightly works today. So for me, having the quick pickup and the vote of confidence in our audience at such an early stage proved to me and Lisa that we were really on to something here. But quitting a steady job, especially at a blue chip company like Adobe, was a daunting idea. Then Laura suddenly got the sign from the universe that she needed when Brightly was accepted into a major accelerator run by none other than Snap Inc. That is really what inspired us to quit our full-time jobs Quitting her full-time job was a risk, but Laura had an ace in her pocket. She knew that Brightly would be a worthwhile investment for VCs because she had already been incidentally testing market demand through content. And through the podcast, she had already proven that demand existed. To start a business, you have to have an audience. So my advice to founders is to be flexible about the way they prove out that product market fit, because that's what you need to be able to do to fundraise, at least at the pre-seed early phase. So if you take this flexible model and you start to strip down what it means to actually have product market fit, you can then be more creative. When you launch your late stage company vision, you want people lined up around the block, ready and excited for what you're building. And you can't really do that unless you build an audience first. With her boxes packed, Laura left Adobe and walked head high into entrepreneurship. Snap Inc., the makers of Snapchat, they were early votes of confidence in Brightly because of this growth. For us, it was very, very clear that day in November that we were going to be building a really large, exciting business. Almost from day one, money was on Laura's mind. And aside from the modest pre-seed funds that Snap gave them through the accelerator, she and her co-founder Lisa had their eye on an even bigger ring, Demo Day. For any listeners who haven't been to an accelerator yet, they're perhaps most valued for Demo Day. This is a single day during which founders showcase their companies to a wide range of investors who are actively scouting deals from the talent in the accelerator. Some accelerators even invite members of the startup's own target audience to Demo Day, making it a do-or-die opportunity for founders in the program. Suffice to say, all systems were go, and Brightly's future was looking, well, pretty bright. That is, until February 2020 happened. COVID hit. Nobody knew what was going to actually happen. So we ended up completing the SNAP Accelerator program remotely, and the organizers did the best they could. Because the world of VC had leaned so heavily on networking in person for years, the abrupt switch to virtual fundraising hit brightly at exactly the wrong time. You know, this is a point where investors were so 
conditioned to meeting people in person, or you'd have to be flying back and forth. And we're talking about an industry that had been that way for 30 years, probably. (laughs) And now having to get investors excited about the potential of meeting people virtually and cutting checks. Just like that, it felt like Laura's first attempt to raise funds was suddenly thrown right back in her face. But the pandemic wasn't the only problem that she was facing. She also had to confront her systemic disadvantage when talking to investors, and the newly virtual aspect of fundraising only made this worse. If you're an underrepresented founder, you already have to do things a little bit differently. You've got to prove more with metrics. You've got to come in and project certain confidences. And to ask somebody that you've never met in person to take a gamble on your pre-seed company as an underrepresented founder, it was just not happening. It wasn't happening for anyone either. So that was a big moment for us as a company to take a step back and figure out how are we going to survive until we can raise a more substantial pre-seed round. Something had to change. And if Brightly was going to survive, Laura needed to find a solution fast. Putting pen to paper, she realized that there was an ingredient she hadn't considered, geography. We knew that if we wanted this fundraise to be successful, we needed to be in a place where investors understood what we were doing. And I had had some early conversations with Silicon Valley-based investors, and there was a lot of very similar feedback where I didn't feel like they 100% understood the commerce part of our business, or they wanted us to prove it out before they invested, which is, you know, that's fair. But if you think about at least the strategy of wanting to fly out and spend time in specific geographies, first of all, you're going to want to make sure that the place that you're going has a big pool of investors that are interested in the space that you're in. They all talk to each other. So if one of them likes you, that can be to your advantage and can kind of help the rest of them come together. Where you raise capital from can actually have an impact on the types of investors you attract and the amount of funding that you end up receiving. Choosing to raise in Seattle was a smart move for Laura since the West Coast, and Seattle in particular, are a little bit more renowned for being sustainability-minded, and that's what Brightly was all about. As we thought about fundraising strategy, number one, we knew we were going to have to last a little bit longer than we originally anticipated by turning on some additional revenue streams like brand partnerships. But the other thing we needed to consider was the different ways that we were going to set the business up to be better prepared for fundraising once people started to write checks. But I also wanted us to have a really nice strategic foothold here in the Pacific Northwest. Laura's willingness to improvise and her choice to relocate gave Brightly a competitive advantage. The VC community in Seattle was particularly known for its early affinity for going green, and consumers around the country were suddenly paying closer attention to where their products came from, especially during COVID. Conscious consumerism as a whole got a huge boost because of COVID. We were all of a sudden so aware of the impact that our dollars had on our local economies, right? Like you had people going out to like buy cocktails to go in mason jars. You had people learning about supply chains. Like what's with the toilet paper shortage? Why is this happening? Why is everything out of stock? Well, that's because of the nature of supply chains. So we start to think about like, How does stuff actually get from 
the factory to my door. And maybe that's going to start to unlock curiosity in ourselves about ethics and sustainability as it comes to consumption. What started as a bleak end to an accelerator and strained communication with investors in a newly virtual environment had actually shifted in Laura's favor. Now she had thousands more people who were interested in what Brightly had to give them. It was time to get to work on pitching to investors in Seattle for her series seed. The moment that we got to Seattle, I knew that I was going to need a way to quickly get introduced to the Seattle startup ecosystem, both investors, mentors, angels, etc. And I had heard awesome things about the Ready, Set, Raise program run by the Female Founders Alliance. Leslie Finzig, who's the founder, is amazing. She has a great reputation and a ton of connections. So I thought, all right. Let's get brightly into this accelerator for the introductions like I just mentioned. But the other thing that was really interesting and crucial about this accelerator for us was it was specifically focused on fundraising and it was specifically focused on fundraising while female. Fundraising while female. This is something that Laura would run into a lot throughout her fundraising process. And Ready, Set, Raise was the key to her success in Seattle. Through the program, she could get the introductions that she needed but in an environment that was specifically tailored to her. Most accelerators focus a lot more on getting the business up to shape, et cetera. And I didn't think that the business really needed a ton more work. So the Ready, Set, Raise program did stuff like I probably pitched 40 hours. (laughs) I mean, I pitched so many times to amazing angels and people who actually had experience writing checks. We had some really brutal feedback, like sometimes too honest kind of feedback thrown at us, but it was because these people were so invested in making sure that we had a successful raise coming out of the program. Now, nobody ever said accelerators were easy, and if you've been to one, you know they're not. But as Laura learned, these intense practice rounds served as a full-blown boot camp, and through Ready, Set, Raise, she discovered that she got closer to product market fit. When you're an early-stage founder and you are looking to raise your first round, You want to be as flexible as you possibly can be. So just because you've heard of somebody else or other companies at your stage using something like a safe does not mean that you have to use a safe. What you should do is come up with a few different scenarios that you would be comfortable with. Laura was getting a lot of advice, but as she quickly realized, not all of it was necessarily good. If you decided that the only path forward is venture capital, then you have to raise that or your company is going to fail. And so you need to be flexible. So I got a lot of advice that was like, you know, pick it. You have to raise a safe. That's the best way to do it. Or nobody does a safe here. Or, I mean, there was so much conflicting advice. And I started to get a little bit overwhelmed by that. Here's the truth. Usually when you're raising a seed round, most people do it on an instrument like a safe or a convertible note. But Laura was smart enough to buck this conventional wisdom. She didn't have to do what everyone else was doing. If the price was right, she was prepared to have a conversation about raising her pre-seed round as a fully priced round. You can't just say like, oh, well, I'll do whatever. That doesn't sound great. What you can say is I am targeting a percent ownership with this round. I have a general idea of what my valuation is going to be. But I want to talk about this more with you in detail later, because what you want to do is you want the investor to set your valuation. 
Now, raising a priced round versus a debt round meant that the rules were going to be different for Laura. Unlike a debt round, she was going to need a lead investor to set key terms like price, option pool size, and participation rights. With this goal in mind, she walked into her first set of real-world pitch meetings with the strategic goal of finding a strong lead. When you're in a pitch meeting, it's very formulaic. You go through, you give your specific pitch with your slides, and you kind of lay out a narrative that is very well defined. And it's important to do it that way because investors are looking for really specific things. And if you don't answer it in the course of a pitch, you're just going to get those questions later. So you might as well set yourself up well from that perspective. But after you're done with the pitch comes the questions where investors really want to dig into things that they don't understand about the business. And I like to put these questions into two different buckets. Laura quickly learned that when raising funds, investors would typically ask her two kinds of questions. First, potential, and second, prevention. Potential questions are the ones you're going to love because they give you the opportunity to talk about your business vision, your progress, and how you see your company shaping up in the best case scenario. Prevention questions, on the other hand, well, let's just say you're not going to like those as much. Investors are trying to identify answers to holes that they've poked into your business, right? You might have laid it out on a slide, but they want some real talk. They want to hear your critical thinking there. In the prevention questions, an investor is trying really hard to say no. They see hundreds of companies, and it's so rare to get a check from a firm just because it's a numbers game. So it's much easier for an investor to take the stance of, I'm going to find a way to say no to every company versus I'm going to say yes to every single one and then have to go into doing that. So there's a reason why they do this. And as she talked to other founders in her community, Laura realized that that reason was because she's a woman. As a female founder, she was being asked prevention questions way more often than she was being asked potential questions, which she quickly learned wasn't necessarily normal. As a female founder... Prevention-based questions are often all you get. You don't get the other type of question, which is the most fun and the one that really gets people on your side, which is the potential question. So what you really want to hear from an investor is them digging into the potential for your business to be giant and to be one that's going to return the fund. And I think having the ability to talk through that with an investor is so exhilarating. That's when you can see if they're excited, they'll kind of jump in and kind of riff off of things with you. And it's an amazing feeling. But I will say that those types of questions typically are given to people that are not underrepresented and they're given to people who look a lot like the investors in the room. Barraged over and over with prevention questions, Laura didn't even have the opportunity to share what could go right with Brightly. She was going to have to find a way to reroute these meetings and fast. If I walked out of a meeting where I didn't get a chance to say the big vision, there were two things that happened. Number one, when that started happening enough, I started to think through, I need to get in front of them with this. So I like kind of threw it on them before they had a chance to not tell me that. So I think that was like something I learned early on. But I also, just as I thought about the experiences that I had heard relayed to me by other founders who didn't look like me, I felt a little bit sad and disappointed because I knew that there was something else going on behind the scenes that I didn't have any control over. Raising around isn't only about flexibility. During these pitch meetings, Laura also had to take more control over what percentage of Brightly she wanted to own and make sure she stayed firm about this number. 
especially with early stage investing, it's really tempting for people to give up too much of their business too quickly. And then you enter into a world where nobody's incentives are aligned because as a founder, you don't have enough ownership left in the company that makes you excited to be on a 10-year-plus journey with your company. (laughs) And from an investor's perspective, they take a huge bet on you personally as a founder. So if you're not invested, they're not invested. And it's kind of a lose-lose situation. Let's talk about dilution for a second. There's one thing you need to be particularly careful about when you're talking with investors, and that's the size of the employee option pool that you're negotiating. Pay close attention to the language around pre-money and post-money. Investors will often ask for a pre-money option pool, which doesn't dilute them personally. It only dilutes you, the founder. And if your option pool is sized too large, it can have a real dilutive effect on you in the future when raising subsequent rounds of financing. Everybody needs to understand that dilution happens to everyone, too. Like, I think oftentimes employees don't understand that. And they think that, like, oh, that's coming out of some special area of your cap table or it's coming out of the CEO. That's not true. Everyone gets diluted. So I think everybody needs to be aligned from that perspective on what that percentage is. Typically, it's around 20%. That's like typical target for most rounds. If you can get less, that's great. (laughs) Or if you're willing to give up more because that's what you have to do, then fine. Finding the right lead investor obviously becomes important in this regard because that lead investor will help you set the right terms with everyone. When Laura met the team at Drumbeat Ventures, she knew she found something special. So the moment when our lead investor said yes, it was just a huge wave of relief because for the longest time, I felt like this and first time founders fundraising feel like this too. You are like the only believer with the exception of your team and hopefully your friends and family. (laughs) You're the only ones that believe in the potential of this business. And you spend so much time trying to convince people and it wears on you. And because a founder will usually work with the lead investor for years and years to come, it's important to find someone that you can see yourself getting along with from the very beginning. I will say, your round doesn't come together until one day it does. It will seem hopeless. It will seem like you're never going to be able to do it. But you have to focus all of your energy on finding that lead. Because once you have that first check, and I'd say the first meaningful check, remember, they needs to be a pretty big size of the round, even if you're not looking for a traditional lead. It just makes the whole thing come together. In Laura's case, Drumbeat was a lead investor who was also good at communicating, and that was important, especially while raising money virtually. Instead of making me go through all these Zoom meetings, our lead investor, he would say, hey, can you jump on a call for us to talk about X, Y, and Z? And of course, my heart would race and I'd be like, what's going to happen? But it was actually really nice to just be on the phone, be able to walk outside and kind of just like have an honest conversation. I remember just connecting with him on such a deep level about the massive opportunity we had, both from obviously a business perspective, but from a world positive perspective and the potential that we really had to kind of reinvent the way consumerism operated today. He got it. Laura let her lead investor set Brightly's valuation. Percentage ownership accounts for the amount of money that you're looking to raise, too. 
But the unfortunate thing that can happen is if you have the target ownership in mind and you're looking to raise, say, a million dollars on a seven million post valuation and somebody comes in and they say, this is an amazing deal. We love you. Let's put three million on this valuation. You can see already the percentage ownership radically changes quickly. And it can be really easy to just say, yes, I need that $3 million. I'm going to take it and I'm going to run with it. But it's not necessarily going to translate to your ownership as well. So like, just understand that piece because it's oftentimes a better idea to not raise a penny over the amount that you were targeting This method worked well with Drumbeat. Laura was able to stick to the amount she wanted to raise, and Drumbeat could set the terms for what type of round Brightly would put together. This ended up being a priced round, which is a bit unconventional for a pre-seed or seed round, but sticking with a strong and compatible lead investor was more important to Laura in this case than the type of round she ended up raising. We actually ended up going with a priced round because that was what the terms that our lead investor wanted to set. And sure, price rounds can be more expensive. We did get a lot of opinions about whether or not we should raise a price round for our first sort of pre-seed round. It's a little bit unusual. I don't regret it because that's what our lead set. And it also, from a nice simplicity standpoint, I now know what my cap table looks like. Now, Laura makes an important point here when she talks about knowing what her cap table looks like. Remember, when you raise a debt round like a safe or a convertible note, Those investors don't fill out your cap table yet. They will in the future when they convert, but today, they're not technically on your cap table. By raising a priced round, Laura was able to create transparency and know exactly who owned what in the moment. Getting Drumbeat on board set the rest of Brightly's round fully in motion. Before Laura knew it, it was New Year's Eve, and the end was finally in sight. The moment Brightly's pre-seed round closed, the whole team breathed a collective sigh of relief. I think New Year's of 2020 was a time that we all kind of got a way to like leave that year behind. (laughs) We all have experience in different ways. And so for me, given that our round closed at the very end of that year really helped us kind of put a close to that chapter, which was the uncertainty, the doubt sometimes when we thought about a fundraising perspective. So yeah, I absolutely remember having conversations with my co-founder and us just really raising a glass and toasting and being like, get some rest over these next two weeks because 2021's happening, it's gonna be huge. So yeah, it was great, it was amazing. And just like that, the holiday season ended in celebration as Brightly closed its pre-seed round. Laura's flexibility allowed her to navigate her fundraising round during an especially difficult time and mitigate the disadvantages that she faced because she was an underrepresented founder. In the end, Brightly raised $1 million in a priced pre-seed round. Those terms were set by their lead investor who took over half the round. They raised from five investors in total, led by Drumbeat from the East Coast. The rest of the round was filled up with Seattle-based money. In addition to thinking about your community as metrics, you should really think about it as like the why of your business. So by taking that mission and applying it to everything we've done, our community then becomes amplifiers for us and reasons for us to build. 
next time on How to Raise a Round. You know, it's helpful to have the right investors around the table. They can help you see around the corners, right? Somebody has experienced something like that before, and hopefully the VCs that you start working with, they can help you anticipate some of the things so you don't make the mistakes that somebody else has made in the past. We sit down with Ben Canner from WorkLeap to learn about venture debt, driving a tight fundraising process, and how the traditional avenues for startup fundraising are breaking away into a whole new normal. This podcast is presented by eShares Incorporated, doing business as Carta, Carta Incorporated, and Carta Ventures. The opinions of the guests and host are their own and do not reflect the view of eShares Incorporated, doing business as Carta, Carta Incorporated, and Carta Ventures. Listeners should not treat any opinions or comments as investment, financial, legal, accounting, or tax advice. The content of the podcast is not legal, financial, or tax advice and is not meant to recommend or offer the purchase or sale of a security. This podcast is informational only. How to Raise a Round is a Hit Start Media production. The show is written and co-produced by me, Josh Durst-Wiseman. Hit Start Media founder Theo Miller is creative director. Olivia Laurie is production manager with sound production by Nick Canepa and script production by Mary Kelleher. This podcast is presented by eShares Inc. doing business as Carta Inc., Carta, and Carta Ventures. 